Okay, he's fleet of foot. He'll be all right. Um, well, this morning we're going to continue in our study um, in the book of Colossians. We're, we're going to be actually completing chapter 1. It's been, I don't know, 6, 7, 8 weeks, something like that. Um, it, it's been a little bit of time, but we're going to be finishing up in chapter 1, starting uh, verses 24 through 29. Um, I'm hoping that you've enjoyed uh, looking through the book of Colossians and hoping that as we've studied it, um, you, you've seen the, the richness and the beauty of this text, and I've been able to, uh, to an extent, stay out of the way a little bit. Last week, we looked at verses 20 through 23, and we saw the glory of reconciliation, of the, the, the truth that the same God, the same Christ, who has created all things, who is before all things, who is preeminent, is the same one who we saw in verse 20, has made peace through the blood of his cross by, by him, by Christ, to reconcile all things unto himself. Uh, we saw the beauty of being reconciled by God, to God, through God. And we looked in the closing verses here in verse 23. He's encouraging them to remain, to continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. He's exhorting them to continue, to continue on in being grounded, not being tossed to and fro as we see in Ephesians chapter 4, but be grounded in the truth of the gospel. And we saw that continue means to continue with persistence that suits the objective. This is enduring. In the midst of circumstance, endure because you are trying to accomplish and trying to reach your objective. And we came away seeing the truth that Jesus Christ is the goal, the motivation, the foundation, the objective is Christ. In any pursuit that we have, Christ is the objective. And what's so encouraging about that is not only is He the objective, but He is the one who is the power behind our walk and behind our run to Him. In verse 23, at the, at the close, Paul again identifies himself by who he is, where he says, Wherefore I, Paul, am made a minister. We're familiar with Paul in the way that he identifies himself to a point now that, that Paul doesn't always like to tell you all of his self-interest. He doesn't say of where I, Paul, who is who am incredibly intrigued with sports or with hunting. and He doesn't go into all of these interests all of the time. That's not where he finds his identity. He doesn't find his identity um, in just his different relationships with people at all times. But he finds it as, as a minister, an apostle. Uh, he always is tying his identity to Christ, and it's incredibly encouraging. This morning, as we look at verses uh, at the close of 23 through 29, um, we're going to see a lot about Paul's personal philosophy behind ministry, his own personal philosophy of ministry. Uh, Paul is somewhat of a mentor to me in some ways, in a way that um, we look, I can look at him and I see um, his passion, I see his heart and see all of this and see all the things that he has shared. And uh, for many of you, perhaps your favorite book of the Bible was penned by Paul. Um, I absolutely love the epistles and I love going through Colossians. I love the book of Romans. And I think it'd be hard not to, to absolutely love the book of Romans. But looking at Paul and seeing the way that he would carry himself, the constant um, example of him to reflect Christ in every circumstance is something that has been incredibly encouraging to me personally. And so here we find him in verse 23, identifying himself as a minister of the gospel. 
Uh, read our text and, and then we'll pray. In verse 24 he says, Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that it's been preserved, that it's been given by you. We thank you that we're able to set aside these few moments this morning on this day to, to study your word, to, to see you in it, to see your glory. God, I pray that as we, as we hear your word this morning, that you would allow it to, to be heard clearly, to be seen clearly, and that, that in all things you would get all the praise. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So here, after Paul has just gone into a large amount of doctrine, from verses 15 all the way into 22, he's going to get a little bit more personal as he talks about himself, but there's also going to be some theological implications. I want to kind of pair verse 23 and 25, um, where 24 is kind of a brief separation. But Paul says that he was made a minister of the gospel. If we're familiar with Paul's background, we know that he did not originally set out in his life to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, This was not his intention. Some of you grew up knowing what you wanted to be from the very beginning uh, of your memory. You remember as as a four or five-year-old saying, I wanted to be this when I get older, when I grow up. And that was going to be your vocation. That was going to be your career. Um, I probably have thought about wanting to be everything in life from about the time that I was five through about 17, 18 years old. I had no clue what I wanted to do. It was going back and forth from, you know, from lawyer to car salesman, which is kind of the same thing, um, you know, to, to janitor, because it'd be cool to just kind of be alone and just do your own thing. And like anything that you could ever consider is I've probably considered it. Uh, always trying to figure out what it is that I wanted to be. And you could look at Paul. We look at him as Saul of Tarsus throughout the New Testament. He's going to, uh, the New Testament gives us a lot of insight into to his background and, and to what it is that he wanted to do. And it becomes very apparent that his intention in life was not originally to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, not only was he not wanting to do that, he was very, very much in opposition to those who wanted to. Um, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, we get a little bit of Saul's resume. Um, his resume was the, was the um, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was everything to a Jew. In Galatians 1.14, he says of himself that he was advancing past many of his contemporaries. I mean, this is the guy that if you want to be a rabbi, a teacher, a Jew in this time, he was the exact model. The best of the best, the cream of the crop, whatever other cliche or analogy we want to use. That's who he was. His resume was virtually flawless as a Jew. 
He had a great zeal in the Jewish ancestry and the teachings, and uh, we're familiar with his being against the gospel. In Acts chapter 7, we see the story of the stoning of Stephen. We see him being stoned and killed simply for being a, a preacher of the word, one who was speaking truth, talking about what Christ has done, being, a, being one who would teach the gospel. And we see Saul in the background collecting and holding the robes of those who wanted to stone Stephen. I mean, can you imagine this? Seeing someone and hating, hating a Christian so much that you are willing to step in the background and to hold the robes of those who want to throw stones to kill this man. And you're saying, hey, I know how I can help. Let me hold your robe so you can throw your stone better. There's incredible hatred, his zeal against the gospel. In, in Acts chapter 9, we see, we're familiar with the Damascus Road experience where he had just received word that he's able to go and arrest and persecute Christians. This was his life, was to go and to persecute Christians. He wasn't sitting back and simply saying, let them do their own thing. He was not a tolerant person. And I think a lot of times we, we can kind of think that too often things are very neutral. And he, he had an incredible zeal against the gospel. Uh, take a moment and flip over to Acts chapter 26. I want to kind of look at Paul's own resume or testimony from his own words. This is as Paul is standing before King Agrippa. He's going to expound on why it is that he's doing all of these things. And, and he's in chains and he's going to be outlining his own experience. And I think, it, I think it's good to look at this because um, Paul explains it in his own words. And that's a whole lot better than anything I could do. But speaking before King Agrippa, starting in verse 9 of Acts chapter 26, says, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them oft in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. So this is Paul standing before King Agrippa at this time, an apostle, a minister of the gospel, standing before him, essentially giving his testimony of the gospel as he appears before King Agrippa, and says, I thought so much to do many things against the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So much so that as I went, I, I would go into the synagogues and the people would be arrested. When they were put to death, I gave my voice against them, compelled them to blaspheme. I was so mad against them, I persecuted them, even under strange cities. This was not as if Paul was sitting back and saying, well, if I see one, I'm going to persecute them. He was actively pursuing those to persecute. This is true anger and hatred and disdain for what it is that's going on here. This is not any kind of indifference or a simple distaste. There is hatred for these people. And again, Paul is saying this of himself before the king. But now he's going to move in verses 12 through 18 and show the difference. As he enters into the testimony of the Damascus Road experience, starting in verse 12, whereupon as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests. Again, he had authority and commission, permission to actually persecute and arrest these Christians. At midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, 
I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes, and to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. This is an incredible explanation of what it is that has happened to Paul. Paul is standing before him and saying, Hey, King Agrippa, I need you to understand something. I was one who went to persecute and to kill Christians. I hated Christians. I hated Christ. I hated the Lord. Everything I was doing, my life's purpose was to find them and to hurt them and afflict them. But as I went to Damascus, having this authority, I saw this light from heaven shining around me. And I heard a voice speaking unto me, saying, Saul, why do you persecute me? And you see, he's confronted with the Lord. He's confronted with Christ. He's confronted with the truth of all of this. And here is where Christ imparts the mission for Paul's life, where he's calling him into ministry. He's making it very clear that he is going to be made a minister of the gospel. Paul did not choose to become a minister of the gospel. God is the one who chose it for him. And, and I love being able to see this, and we're not going to continue on all the way through the chapter, but I encourage you uh, to read this. It's an incredible account. But it was God who has chosen Paul to be a minister. In verse 25, back in Colossians, we, we can, it's made clear that Paul did not become a minister of the gospel for his own gain. He did not become one who was going to travel from town to town and, and to reach out to the Gentiles and to live a life that he was going to live for his own personal gain. We're familiar now with Paul's circumstances in his life. It was not all sunshine, rainbows, and lollipops. There was a lot of negativity going around then. I know today we, can, we look and we look at what's going on with schools and, and different things, whether... Uh, laws that are being made and restrictions, and we believe that Christians are being incredibly oppressed in a way that they never have been before. And while that may be true in a lot of circumstances in our country, look back at the accounts of the disciples. Look back at Paul's life. These are the, the realities that we see biblically are not always actually present here in America, and we are incredibly blessed for that. Incredibly blessed. But when we see suffering and persecution in the way of Christians being in chains, beaten, killed, these are very present realities in so many other countries in the world. But what happens is we don't see those on the news because there's no political gain for it. It's not going to be as common. There's a pastor I just saw in Turkey that's, been, that, that's arrested and is going to be in prison for essentially the rest of his life simply for being a Christian. These are very present realities that are going on. Paul was not becoming a minister for his own personal gain. He was going to be a, a preacher. He was going to be all of these things because it is what God had asked him, called him, and required of him, not for himself. Now think today about how many people get into ministry or feel called to be pastors because there's a personal gain for it. 
You know, there's the common joke that you should be a pastor. It's an easy job. You only have to work half a day a week, right? You guys can laugh at that. It's okay. I don't feel personal about it. <laughs> right? It, it's a misconception. It's all you have to do is you get up, you speak for a little bit, and then you collect the paycheck the rest of the week. There's, there's nothing else you have to do. Oh, it's going to be an easy life. Everyone's going to love you. It's going to be easy to deal with people. And so commonly, there's so many that, that get into it and say, man, I, I really like speaking in front of people. And, you know, I, I believe some Christian things, so I think I might just, I might be a pastor because I like to speak. And so often, so often, it's incredibly misunderstood. There are a lot of ministers of the gospel that would call themselves that, that are ministering for their own self-gain. And, and I don't need to recount all the different um, examples that we've, we've covered previously. Um, just because a pastor is on TV does not make them a heretic. I want to clarify that quickly. Um, but again, we, always, we must be discerning in what it is. But we've all heard um, so many of the stories. Paul makes it clear that his becoming a minister was not for his own gain, but in verse 25, for his glory to be sent forth. According to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you, to fulfill the word of God. He is becoming a minister to fulfill the word of God. Not to get his own interests out of the way, but to fulfill the word of God. Listen to what Paul says about his call to preach the gospel of Christ in 1 Corinthians. In chapter 9, verse 16 and 17, he says, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me, yea, woe is unto me, if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me, what is my reward then? Verily that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel." Saying, when I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory in. But woe is me if I preach not the gospel. This is an, an incredible, heartfelt passion of Paul to say, woe is me if I am not preaching the gospel of Christ. And in other places, we see that those who are not, who are not doing so, let them be anathema, let them be accursed. They're preaching something that is not the gospel. Woe unto them. It is a very serious call that Paul is understanding that he has been he has received. And this is where we see Paul say something that doesn't really uh, jive or go well with our natural response. Look at verse 24. Talking to himself, Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Now if you're like me, sometimes you, you see these these phrases, we see Paul continuously saying it. We see James saying it, of this idea of rejoicing in sufferings. Well, God, I don't want to rejoice when I'm suffering. I want to be mad at you, you know? Isn't that easier? How many of you, when, when suffering comes or a, a trial comes, you, want to, you just want to yell at somebody, right? You want to be irritated. You want to respond in a way that's not rejoicing in sufferings. That's not our natural inclination in the flesh. But Paul is saying he rejoices in his sufferings. Why would he rejoice in his sufferings? Why is it that he's rejoicing in his sufferings? Because he knew the purpose of the suffering. He knew the purpose of it. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 through 4, 
It says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and to set down at the right hand of the Father. He, he, he rejoiced in his sufferings because he had his eyes set on Christ, the one who endured the cross. And, he continu- and, and the author of Hebrews continues in verse 3, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest he be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. So we, we have an understanding here. The author's, author of Hebrews is saying, Look, we too can rejoice in our sufferings. We know that Christ has suffered and done all these things. You may suffer, yes, but you have not suffered to the point of blood. You have not suffered like Christ has. You have not endured the cross. You have not endured the weight of the sin of the world. So Paul knew that regardless of his sufferings, he knew that Christ had suffered more. And we see that like Christ, Paul never lost his joy regardless of the circumstance. Have you noticed that? Paul didn't ever lose his joy, and he was in some horrible circumstances. But he continued to talk about the joy of Christ, the joy that God had given to him. Paul was also a very humble person. Joy is generated by this humility. It's produced by the humility. Those who are incredibly proud are usually not very joyful individuals. In our pride, we tend to believe that we deserve things, right? Well, I deserve this, so if a good circumstance comes across my way, well, I earned it, I deserved it, so that's fair. When a bad circumstance comes across to a proud person, well, this is not fair, I don't deserve to be dealing with this. This shouldn't be this way. Paul never loses his joy even in the midst of suffering. And this is something that, if maybe it's just me, but every time I see the example of those rejoicing in their sufferings, it causes me to go back and say, do I rejoice in my sufferings? It's such a, a prevalent theme in the Bible of rejoicing in sufferings, but yet usually the first instinct is, oh, that's not fair. The humanity says that's not fair. You should be mad. You, should, you deserve these good things. Paul had his joy because he understood the root of his joy. He understood all that was true, that he is absolutely deserving of nothing. Paul understood all he deserved was death. He deserved punishment, but yet what he has received instead is Christ. He received Christ, the hope of glory. His joy was based upon that recognition of being undeserving. And it's an incredible example that Paul is showing forth through the Spirit here of understanding that he can rejoice in his sufferings because of what Christ has done, because of who he is in Christ, because of all of these things. Joy is something that, that can often be uh, disregarded in conversations in church. We, we talk a lot about um, so many things, and if, you're, if you've ever done a word study in joy, biblically, you are going to find a whole lot talking about joy, the joy that we have in our salvation, the words rejoicing. So many of the songs that we're singing, it's rejoicing in the Lord, rejoicing in all of these things. We should not be a seemingly cold or depressed people as Christians. We should be a joyful people, filled with joy. I'm horrible at conveying that joy. I'm not a big smiley person. My wife's laughing at me because she's like, yeah, you could smile a little more. I'm happy. I just don't know how to show it all the time, right? 
But have you, do you have this idea? Do you have the understanding? Have you truly experienced the joy that Christ gives? The joy of your salvation that you are absolutely deserving of death, of sin, of punishment, of all of these things. But yet, because of the love of Christ, there is a blessed assurance in the songs that we're singing. We rejoice upon our salvation. We rejoice in the beauty of the grace that we have received. Joy. Because of something that is true. This is not a child who has no awareness of what is going on in the world. And they're just naturally happy. That's little Judah. He's four months old. He doesn't cry much. He's just happy all the time. You can look at him over there right now. He's just probably smiling. He's such a joyful kid because he doesn't, he doesn't have a reason not to be yet. But true Christian joy is based upon the truth of who God is, what He's done, and our understanding of all that He is, the beauty of what it is that we have received. And because of this, Paul rejoiced in his sufferings, knowing it doesn't even compare to what's going to be received. And then he says, And fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ. This isn't indicating in any way that um, that he had to fill up what was left of the afflictions of Christ, that Christ's afflictions, that his death on the cross wasn't enough. Um, we're familiar from the previous verses. Paul is incredibly clear. Everything that Christ did was totally sufficient. Christ is sufficient. So it's not saying that his suffering wasn't enough to purge us from sins. But he's, going to, he's referencing the afflictions that he faces because of his ministry. Again, Paul was beaten. He was imprisoned. Um, people threatened to kill him so many times. But he's rejoicing in the sufferings. The afflictions that are intended for Christ are ones that he had received. Again, Paul is in prison as he writes this. Paul is sitting here in chains, speaking, and he's speaking with Epaphras. They, he just received this report of the church. They're having this conversation, and Paul is saying, look, I'm rejoicing in my sufferings. And imagine if this was a Skype interview or Google Hangouts, whatever it is that you'd want to do, you would see him talking about rejoicing in sufferings, and he would do this and show you being in chains. Like, picture what is going on here. This is not a person telling you to rejoice in your sufferings, having never endured a little bit of affliction. He intimately knows affliction. You could argue is potentially his, his greatest companion at the time. He's talking about how he understands and how he's aware that the sufferings he's endurings are not ones that are, effect, that are towards him personally. Jesus was wounded and he was afflicted. We know that if they hated, they hated Christ, they're going to hate his disciples, right? We saw that. That's why so many of them were martyred. They hated Christ so much that they killed those who followed him. This is not a surprise to so many of us. This happens in so many different walks of life. But we know biblically that because people hate Christ, Christian, they're going to hate you too. You are going to be persecuted because of that. Because guess what they can't do anymore? They can't get Christ anymore. They can't. Who, who can attack Christ right now? Anybody? No one. You're the next best thing. Satan can't go up there and try to punish Christ. He never, he never really could. What, what, what he thought he was doing was accomplishing the will of God. These sufferings that he is enduring, he's able to rejoice in them because he understands, one, it identified him more and more every single time with Christ. They hated Christ so much that they would afflict Paul. Christians will endure persecution. They will endure affliction by those who reject Christ because they can no longer directly afflict him. 
And this is what we see so often, and it's so much more common that we see it among missionaries. But so many of you are familiar with reports of missionaries, with pastors in different countries. You're actively involved in knowing what's going on. We see this so often. And Paul, even so, in spite of his circumstance, rejoices. What an incredible truth to rejoice regardless of circumstances. Because circumstances may change but your position in Christ will never waver. Verses 26 and 27, move quickly through the remaining verses. It says, Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but is now manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of his glory, of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now we could spend all next week just talking about that last phrase, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is packed. But Paul is showing he's a minister preaching the things which were formerly a mystery but now have been made manifest to the saints of God. The things, the new things that, are, that would be revealed. I, I continue to be astounded and, and thankful, and again, this is one of the causes for rejoicing, but um, rejoicing that I was born and I live under the new covenant. Um, I, I think so, we should all be re- rejoicing in that. But, uh, but I look and I, I look at those in the Old Testament, I look at the Pharisees, and I look at all these different interactions, and, and, and I constantly am asking the question, man, why couldn't they just see it? Like, why didn't they understand they memorized everything. They knew it all. Why couldn't they see it? That doesn't seem fair. Like how, They knew so much more. These Pharisees who had memorized the entire Old Testament, they know so much more about the Old Testament than nearly any of us ever would have based on their memorization, and yet they couldn't understand. They couldn't see it. They couldn't grasp it. Why is that? Well, it's because God hadn't revealed it to them, and here we're seeing this incredible thing that the mystery which was hid from ages and from generations is now made manifest to his saints. What an incredible gift that we have of having the complete and total Word of God, of being, having the New Testament, having this revelation, having the mysteries revealed to us. Because I get caught every now and then thinking it's always been this way. It's not the case. Not everyone has always had the complete and total Word and it's something that so quickly we're willing to set aside. He's talking here about the New Testament truth, this, this new understanding, the mysteries which were hid in previous generations are now made manifest to his, to his saints. This is the, the incarnate Christ, the unity of Jew and Gentile. Again, this was not something that was going to be happening. The idea of the church. And the most profound of these mysteries being found at the end of verse 27, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The idea that Christ would indwell each and every one of his people. Completely, completely uh, a mystery being revealed. And it's easy for us at times to, to having a knowledge of the New Testament to look back in the Old Testament and say, see, how come they couldn't see it? It's right here. Have you ever done that? Have you ever just looked in the Old Testament and said, well, this clearly means this, and we know that because of the New Testament, right? And it seems simple, it seems easy, and we're like, yeah, we understand that. But where would we have been without the New Testament? 
We'd be left wandering. We'd be left only seeing shadows, trying to truly understand what the sketch is, what the outline is. The New Testament makes it very, very clear. It is Christ. The idea of Christ in us and with us seems obvious from the New Testament because it is. But in the Old Testament, it's shadowed of Emmanuel. He'll be called Emmanuel, God with us. It's talked about, but they couldn't see it. There's incredible incredible truth as Paul is going to be a minister of the gospel of the mysteries which are being revealed and again we're flying through these remaining verses here the, the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles he's going to be a minister to the Gentiles to show the riches of his glory and then in 28 and 29 whom we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Well, there, there's his mission, right? Makes it clear. He's, he's not just out here to see people understand some good moral principles. He's not just out here to see people feel comfortable. Paul's passion was to proclaim Christ. Why? To present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. The word for perfect there is teleos. It means meaning mature or complete in all of its parts. Spiritual maturity of the people. Paul was not content with, oh, as long as you pray and receive Christ and you're an infant Christian, now I'm going to let you wander as an infant. We, we would never do this even in our own lives, right? Whereas uh, someone would have a baby. There's a few of them even here, here today. Oh, baby's born. Awesome. Leave him off to the side. What would we call that? Neglect, right? Not good. Hopefully none of you have done this. There's a lot more of you should have said, that's not good. You nurture it. You, you, you do the things that it takes to rec that requires the maturity. The goal for Paul in his ministry was not just infant Christians, but spiritual maturity. His goal was to present mature believers in Christ. It was not enough for Paul to say, as long as you know who Christ is on a very general sense, that's okay. His goal was so much more than that. It was maturity. And this is why God makes it very, very clear about sanctification. God is not content with you just simply knowing as much about Him the day you were saved as the day that you die. He continues to grow and mature His people. This is why God has given gifts to His church for the edification, the building up, the maturing of the body. It's not for self-gain. This is not something where we receive gifts from the Lord for His church and we decide to wield it for our own personal benefit. To grow the church, to grow one another, to produce maturity among His people. And for this purpose, Paul in verse 29, whereunto I also labor. He labored in doing this. This was not a passive ministry. He was not a passive minister. And then we see it again, striving according to His working. Striving there, the Greek is agonizio. This is where we get the word for agonize, to agonize, to work hard in this. There should be labor, labor in pursuit of the goal of presenting every man perfect in Christ. But notice at the close of verse 29, he makes it very, very clear. It's not because of his own resume. He's not able to fulfill any of these things. He's not able to accomplish it because of his own doing, because of his own working, but he's striving according to his working to Christ's, which worketh in me mightily. At all times, Paul is making it clear, Christ is the one who is working in me. It is not something I am doing of my own. 
and this is the most crucial part, is that you don't see Paul taking credit for success of his ministry. You don't see Paul taking credit and saying, look at how great I am for being able to accomplish all of these things in and of myself. He says, yeah, look at my resume. It's dung. It's worthless. It's nothing. If I'm preaching anything outside of the gospel, what, am I, what are we doing? It's blasphemy. Let them be anathema. Let them be a curse. It's rubbish. Every single bit of it. Worthless stuff. There's no point in doing anything apart from Christ. So he's laboring. He's striving. He's rejoicing in his labor. Rejoicing in his striving, in his suffering. Because again, he's continuing on with the objective in mind. Presenting mature believers in Christ. Growing others in spiritual maturity. Helping others to see the mysteries which have been made known to the saints, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the message that Paul brought forth. You might say, well, yeah, I can't be like Paul. I'm not an apostle. Or, well, I'm not going to be, I'm not a pastor. I'm, I'm not a minister. How, how am I going to be able to do any of this? Do you have the message of the gospel? Do you know it? Do you love it? Do you believe it? Do you know what it is? then you're called to be a minister of the gospel. You're called to be able to go and to share this with other people, to help present others mature in Christ. To labor, to strive in doing so. Labor, strive in your studies. Men, study the Bible. Study it. It's really easy to, to sit back and say, well, I know enough. I can, I can rely upon what I remember back in Sunday school. You know, that, that'll be enough for me. That, that's what I know of the Bible. Get your Bible out. Study it. Strive. Labor in it. Don't just do a passing reading. Seek to understand, to learn, to know, to strive and to labor. And again, it's, it's clear, and, and I would hope it goes without saying, but not every person is going to be a pastor or work in any form of vocational ministry. And that is not... That's not something I'm going to ever encourage either. But in any circumstance you are in, whether it's the workplace, the school, wherever you find yourself, you can labor for the gospel. You can labor in doing these things. You can labor in helping present Christ and presenting those to present people perfect in Christ Jesus. Wherever God has placed you is your, is your mission field. It's your, your area of ministry. And I love seeing Paul's passion for ministry, simply setting you on the guiding point to present those mature in Christ, to see Christ the hope of glory, laboring because of the work that Christ is doing in him mightily, and in all circumstances, in verse 24, rejoicing in his sufferings. Yeah, there's going to be bumps in the road. There's going to be hard times. Rejoice in your sufferings. God is doing a great work. He continues to do things. He's not, going, he's not sitting back watching the world turn. And I'm incredibly encouraged when we look at this and seeing the true concept of joy, which at times I can often forget, to continue to return with joy for what it is that we've received. Rejoicing because we know what we deserve and we know what we've received and they are not the same thing. From receiving His mercy and His grace as opposed to His wrath and His judgment. What an incredible cause for us to rejoice, church. What an incredible cause for us to rejoice. This joy is not found in circumstance, but in the promises of Christ. And again, we've already seen it be accomplished. We know it's already been done. We know it's, it's, it's sure to come. And that the trials of this life are nothing compared to the glory that's going to be received. And just 
in those times where we fail to rejoice, take a moment to look and to reflect upon what it's going to be that day where you see Jesus face to face, seeing him shining in all of his brightness, all of his glory, all of his majesty. You do that, it's going to be hard to come away without rejoicing, keeping all in perspective, seeing him for who he is. And I'm incredibly thankful for that. Let's pray. Father, we, re- we rejoice in you. We thank you for the joy that you've given to us, the joy that is not produced simply in our minds, not a joy that, that needs to be manufactured, that needs to be, to be conjured up in any way, but the joy that is rooted in the heart of every Christian, the joy that comes with, with receiving your Son, the, the atonement, Uh, for our sins, the one who died as a substitution for us, taking our punishment and returning back with us grace and mercy and redemption. God, I I pray that that as your church and as your body that we would be be a people of joy, that those who would look upon us would see the joy that we have in you, that we would Rejoice in all that you've given to us because, God, we are the ones who hold the true message and the meaning of joy. All joy, true joy comes from you. Father, we thank you for the, the grace and the mercy and the goodness that you continue to, to display each and every day. We thank you for the mighty work of creation and the the constant sustaining that you do in this world. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for redemption. We thank you for for being a perfect and a holy God. And we thank you that you are totally sovereign in all things. God, we rejoice in the fact that we are not in control, but that you are. We rejoice in your infinite wisdom. We rejoice in your word. We We find great joy in simply resting in you in times of of weariness, in times of discomfort and uncertainty. May we all just return to you with joy and rejoicing in our position in you. God, we thank you that that you have given us joy and that, that we're able to experience that. We're able to share in that, not only with you, but with one another. We're able to to share our joy with another and to be able to rejoice over those who come to Christ, rejoice over a person who has come to a greater understanding of you, to be able to rejoice in in healing, to be able to even rejoice in suffering. God, you are so good and so great and so, so wonderful and so incredibly big that we'll never understand. And we look forward to that day of seeing you face to face, our faith becoming sight, looking upon you, in all of your glory and rejoicing in the truth of who you are. Father, we look forward to that day and and we honor and praise you this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.